more than any previous era of American church history, it seems that a growing number of people are leaving the church dissatisfied and disillusioned. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for their dissatisfaction or for their disillusionment, but it doesn't really matter, does it? People are dissatisfied. It could be their pastors. The guy simply doesn't meet up to their standards. He falls short, or maybe he preaches too long, or he preaches too short. He doesn't dress right. For some, they like him because he dresses nice. For others, they like him because he wears skinny jeans. And the moment he wears skinny jeans, some people come to the church and others leave the church. It might be disappointment and dissatisfaction with God's people. I mean, after all, they bite and devour each other sometimes. Sometimes they say nasty things to each other. They just generally are underwhelming people as they disappoint and dissatisfy us when we're around them. So the solution for many people has been simply to stay home. Sunday morning rolls around. The bed is comfy. The bed is nice. And in our age of technology, you can hear great, phenomenal celebrity preachers with just the click of a button. You can have better coffee at home made from your very own Keurig, if you dare to call that coffee at all. You can sing the songs that you like. You can make your own playlist. If they don't sing enough hymns, that's just fine. You can put it all together right there in your own bedroom and sing to your heart's content. After all, it's better that way, right? No disappointing pastors, no disappointing people, and no dissatisfaction after church on Sunday. You can even pause the pastor in the middle of his sermon to be able to check on your favorite sports team, see how they're doing. These very same people sometimes point to the church and say, those people failed me. It's their fault. However, what if the problem is not that pastors and people are disappointing? What if the real problem is that we, those who are disappointed with pastors and God's people, what if the real problem is that we ever expected pastors and people to satisfy us in the first place? You see how the problem shifts? The real problem might not be that people are dissatisfying. The real problem might be we're trying to find satisfaction in people. Truth be told, Scripture shows us time after time after time how fallible, how dissatisfying, and how limited all human leaders can be. Adam sinned. Noah laid wasted in a garden, shamed after the flood. Abram slept with Hagar. Great scandal. Jacob was a coward, and Joseph, as great as he was, he failed everyone when he died. Moses was absolutely no exception. Exodus 18 forces us to see this shocking truth. I can think of no other reason why Exodus 18 is planted in the middle of the context that it is other than to show us this. Moses himself was limited Moses himself was unable to bear the burden of God's people without wearing out. 
His own father-in-law warned him that if he continued to be the all-in-all for God's people, if he continued to try and be the 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 go-getter, the the judge and savior of God's people, he would decay. He would wear out. He would die away. Both he and the people would burn out. So you know what that tells me? If Jethro's own father-in-law was able to tell him that, if Moses was your pastor, you would still be disappointed and dissatisfied. And what's the point in acknowledging this? I think we need to stare the awkward truth in the face. And I am one of those disappointing, disillusioned pastors that people have had over time. I think we need to face it squarely for what it is. Human shepherds cannot shepherd you eternally. Human shepherds are limited. Human shepherds are flawed. There's only one shepherd who can bear the weight of all God's people, their grumbling hearts, their sins, their dissatisfactions, their hurts, their pains, their wounds, their questions. There's only one shepherd who can bear all the burden of God's people and not wear out. Only one savior who can carry the burden. Only one divine pastor who can change hearts and completely satisfy you and leave your heart no longer grumbling, but giving gratitude. That's with that main point in mind. Now, I think we're ready to look at Exodus 18. We'll look at three basic truths about God, God's glory, God's people, and God's shepherds in general. And all this is going to lead up to our need for a chief shepherd, for the real shepherd of God's people. Now, before looking at these three truths, it's worth the time to review the context. You know, Exodus 1 through 15, God has declared war on Pharaoh. He's sent plagues. He's absolutely obliterated and smashed the gods of Egypt, brought judgment on all Egypt. Um, he's delivered them from the Red Sea right at the last moment, right before Pharaoh was ready to kill them. They walked across some dry land, and almost immediately after, just three days later, the people reveal that they are still sinful people as they begin to grumble against God. They grumble for no water. They grumble because there's no food. They grumble again against Moses. They say and, and accuse both Moses and God of leading them out into the wilderness to starve them as if they had some kind of malicious intent behind this deliverance from Egypt. Now, many turn to Exodus 18 and, and, and the way that several preachers have dealt with Exodus 18 in the past befuddles me. It's like we get this, this rhythm going. God defeats Pharaoh. And then in Exodus 15, we hear this drumbeat of grumbling Israel, grumbling Israel, grumbling Israel. And then we get to Exodus 18 and all of a sudden it's a totally different message. Leadership development or, uh, uh, tips for delegating. All of a sudden it becomes a Maxwell sermon, right? Where Maxwell is telling us how to be good leaders in corporations and businesses. And so this is the go-to verse that teaches us how and why we need to delegate. I actually don't think that's in the context at all. In the context of Israel's sinfulness, I feel like Exodus 18, again, is showing us the limited people of God because of their own sinful hearts and the limited shepherd that they have. It shows us the spiritual state of Israel. We're going to see that in a very subtle way, uh, but it's there nonetheless. It's going to show us the limitations of the greatest leader of Israelite history. 
The one that for centuries later, they still pointed to and hope that Israel would be saved. And then in this way, we're going to be forced to look at Jesus, I think. I don't think Exodus 18 is put there for anything less than for us to see our complete and total need for Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's not a clean-cut outline. Exodus 18 is kind of hard to deal with. It's a little bit of an amorphous blob, but we're going to deal with it in those three truths. Truth number one is simply this. God will be glorified among the nations even if his people are unfaithful. Just say that again. God will be glorified among the nations even if his people are unfaithful. Now, to be clear, God in his grace and his glory has always given a faithful generation or a Faithful people among a wicked generation. You have your Boazes, your Ruths, your Jonathans, your Jeremiahs, and your Daniels who follow the Lord even on all the rest of Israel is falling away from Him. So you, you still have those faithful people, but Israel as a whole, generally throughout the history of Israel, is pretty much broken. It's not the God-glorifying witness that he intended it to be. It's not the lamp on the hill so that the nations in the darkness can come and see and glorify Yahweh. But still, we have things like this in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, the author wants you to be absolutely clear on who this Jethro was. He's not an Israelite. He's not an Egyptian. He wasn't there in Egypt to see the deliverance. This is Moses' father, who we met in Exodus to Ruel, the priest of Midian. He's a pagan priest. He belongs to an entirely different religious group. He belongs to an entirely different place. And yet he hears what God has done. And he comes seeking out Moses and Moses' God. This is exactly what God told Pharaoh would happen in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Jethro's listening and he hears. He hears that God has smashed the Egyptian gods. And he comes searching out this God and searching out for his father-in-law, Moses. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. Now, he took Moses' wife and children began the trek to reconnect with his son-in-law. Just a little side note, because I know there's lots of questions. How did Zipporah get away from Moses in the first place? It seems that Moses sent her away for her own safety um, when he was in Egypt. I mean, after all, you don't want your little kids around when Pharaoh's threatening them run you over with chariots and stuff, right? But the news would have been quite astonishing to Jethro to hear that this ragtag refugee son-in-law of his who became an obscure shepherd for 40 years is now all of a sudden the judge and leader of an entire nation of people, over a million people in this group, and that God has done amazing things through him and for his people. I mean, just think of some of your son-in-laws and think of what would happen if you heard some of the same things. It was good he got his lazy butt off the couch finally, right? But Jethro's finally hearing this, and he's hearing this, and he's glorifying God, and he's going with two of Moses' sons, Gershom, which means sojourner, and Eliezer, which means God is my help, because God had saved Moses from the sword of Pharaoh. So he's going, and he's seeing these testimonies of God's faithfulness and goodness to him. 
Now, upon Jethro's arrival, Moses greeted him and told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Egypt and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered him. And we're going to come back to that verse here in just a second. But notice his response in the next verse. And Jethro rejoiced. Rejoiced. It goes on in verses 10 through 12 to give greater detail of that response. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, this is remarkable. Remember, this is a Midianite priest who burnt offerings to idols, who led the people in idolatry in Midian. We know that they belong to an entirely different group. The Ten Commandments movie, which makes you believe that they kind of basically had the same kind of God. No, Midianites were idol worshipers. And this is one of their pastors over the false religion. And he's coming and he's speaking and acting like an Israelite. Now, first came his proclamation. He said, blessed be the Lord. And then comes his own personal confession. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. All that happening because of what he had heard done in Egypt. But then next came his acts of worship. He burnt offerings and sacrifices and even ate with the elders before God, meaning in the presence of God. Now, just listen to what this is saying. This is God's heart for the nations. You ever wonder where you see missions in the Bible? You want to know where we get this concept of of why we shouldn't just be focused on our own little group of people, but why we need to take the gospel to the nations and why that's why life is worth living and why should we go places that nobody else can go or will go? Why should we take the gospel to dark corners? It's because this has been God's vision forever. A Midianite Gentile priest who proclaimed faith in Yahweh now sits and eats in the presence of God. Jesus said the same thing would happen in Matthew 8, 11. He says, I have other people, not of this fold. And then he starts talking about the Gentiles who will come from north, south, east, and west and will eat at Israel's table in God's presence. You get to Isaiah 56 and it anticipates a day. It says this, when the Gentile nations will join themselves to the Lord. God promises that their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And then we've heard Jesus quote this passage before. For my house shall be called a house of, the, of prayer for all peoples. How big is God's vision? It's global. Global includes local. Local is a part of global. But how big is God's vision? It's global. It's that people from all over, all the nations would come and eat in his presence and join in fellowship with him and his people. Paul himself talked about his own ministry. And he talked about his work as an apostle. And he said, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. Why? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
So when we read Jethro here, our hearts should be pounding because this is what the future looks like. Midianites, Mexicans, Moabites, Russians, all the people we can't stand eating at the table with us in the presence of God. Barriers, boundaries broken. God's heart's for the nations. And for them to know Him. For them to worship Him. For us to be a testimony to them. But what's funny is, is God is not bound by our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. This is true throughout all the scriptures. If you want to read in the, in the scriptures, one of the things you see is that Israel, for the most part, is almost always unfaithful. But yet people still come to know Yahweh. Jethro the Midianite had heard what God had done, even turns around and begins to worship the Lord. And this after Moses has told him about all the hardships along the way, which I'm sure included the time they wanted to stone him because they had no water. All the hardships along the way includes, yeah, dad, you just don't understand how gripey these people are. They have no food. They have no water. They get manna. They don't obey. He tells them all the hardships along the way. And still Jethro is brought to his knees to worship God. You know what that tells me? It is not dependent on us. God has a global vision and all nations, every knee will bow. Whether I do or say what I'm supposed to do in the first place. Now. There is a caveat here. Moses was being faithful and he told Jethro about what God has done. And Jethro worshiped the Lord in spite of what Israel had done. There's two ways God will be glorified. He will either be glorified because of you or in spite of you. As a pastor of a church, I'm constantly faced with this. Whether or not we do what we are supposed to, whether or not we're going to be gospel-centered, whether or not we're going to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to our communities and welcoming people that we wouldn't normally want to hang out with because we want them to know the gospel, whether or not we do that, one thing you can know, people will hear the gospel and be saved. Let's hope it's because of us, not in spite of us. There's not been one church's downfall that has hindered God's goal. There's not one pastor, pastor's immorality or his adultery that has ever caused a dip in God's overall plan and purpose. I mean, if David can sleep with Bathsheba, Israel can get exiled from their land. Abraham can, can sleep with Hagar and we know that that doesn't thwart God's plan, then we can know it's not dependent on us. So let's be humble here just for a little bit and realize that God has invited us into his mission to glorify himself. He's not begging us to. He's not dependent. Guys, you don't realize I can't do this without you. When, if ever, have you ever heard God say something like that? God will be glorified either because of his people's faithfulness or in spite of their unfaithfulness. 
I find that incredibly encouraging. And it makes me personally, as a personal application, when I think about that, I'm like, well, what's the point then? Well, I kind of want to be because of, right? I don't want to be on the in spite of side. I don't want people at my funeral to say, yeah, we, we knew about the Lord in spite of his, the way he talked to his wife or in spite of the way he drove down the Texas freeway or in spite of the fact that he got angry when his favorite football team lost. You know, I want them to kind of say, we know the Lord because he shared it with us. He told us about God. He shared the gospel with us. That's what I'm hoping for, at least. So that's just a personal application. Truth number one, God will be glorified. Not dependent on you. Sub-application to that point. I hope you want God to be glorified because of your life. Not in spite of your grumbling hearts. Truth number two. Now, it won't take as much. That that took more time than any other point today. And so the next two points will be relatively shorter. Truth number two is simply this. God's people continue to sin and grumble even after salvation. Now, that's the kind of an elementary school thing to say, right? We all kind of know that, to say that God's people grumble and sin after salvation. But I find it pastorally amusing how often we tend to forget it. That we still sin and grumble after we're saved. We think because we're saved, then every single complaint we have now is sanctified. We think now that we're saved, we can say everything we want and then tag on in parentheses, I mean it in love. And it's Christian. But the reality is, is God's people are still grumblers even after salvation. Verses 13 and 16 tell us this. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, that's an important detail. From morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people sit around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Now, that's not so bad. He's basically giving out counseling, right? That's great. But listen to what it means to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person or another. And I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. Do you hear that? Morning till evening, the greater part of a million people standing around Moses, wanting him to solve their squibbles, their arguments, and disputes. Moses, he touched my donkey. What does the law say about that? (laughs) Moses, he peed on the edge of my tent. What does the law say about that? Stoning's got to be somewhere in that for that, right? I mean, just I just want to paint the picture. It's realistic here. It's easy to over to overlook some of these details. These are disputes bickerings, fightings. Their grumbling is not just isolated toward Moses and Aaron. Their grumbling is about each other. What we read them do, read about them doing in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 to God and to Moses, you better believe they're doing it to each other. I mean, experience tells us this, right? If you know someone who complains about someone else, you can better believe they're complaining about you or have complained about you at some point in time. God's people bite and devour one another even after they've been given amazing grace. God's people bicker and fight and come up with, with bad disputes. I just, I just, I read that I'm like, 
they had disputes? Why did they have disputes in the first place? They had experienced walking through dry ground, through a sea. They had experienced hail falling from the sky and turning into fire. They had experienced the frightening, terrifying night that God's death passed over Egypt, and yet they were saved. What do you have to complain about? But they had disputes. My friends, the same thing happens to us all the time. We chuckle and we giggle about those examples, but that's absolutely true. Not only that, we've been given more than the Israelites could ever think about. They walked through a sea. We walked through death. They were brought out of Egypt. We were brought out of sin. They were made a nation. We were made sons and daughters. They were given temporary freedoms and some of them still died in the wilderness. We've been given everlasting life and been seated at the right hand with the Father in Christ with every spiritual blessing at our disposal. But you just don't know what they said about my option of the chair or the carpet color. But you just don't realize how many times we've sung that song. I'm not trying to be whimsical or make light of our downfalls. I'm actually one of the ones that do that most often. I'm up here far more than most of you are, which means my complaints about this place or about you probably outweigh your complaints about me. <laughs> I love all in love. <laughs> That's right. But let's just be honest about it, right? We grumble about the slightest things that's not to our, to our liking. We can pull disputes out of the air that don't even exist. All of a sudden, I've always been, it's always amazed me. And this is not just true of our church. This is true of any church. Any church you go to, this is absolutely true. So, so Grace Church is, is actually remarkably, amazingly unified compared to some of the churches I've been a part of. But still, it is just amazing how God's people can sometimes create a dispute out of nothing. We file the worst verbal lawsuits against people. The people we are most suspicious about tend to be sitting in this room with us. The people we accuse of maligning us, hurting us, limiting us, throwing us out, kicking us out, booing us out, not loving us, not wanting us, are typically the people who have loved us the most. My friends, sometimes stating things that people don't like to hear is the best way to deal with it. Your salvation brought you out of sin, but there is still sin inside of you. God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, but Egypt was still inside of them. They needed to realize that. We need to realize that because that's the only way that we can actually deal with it, right? Half the time I'm complaining, I'm realizing that it's my fault, (laughs) my sin, my struggles, my discontentment. 
And it helps to remember from time to time, you know what, I've been saved, but I've not, I've not been fully delivered from this body of flesh. Paul constantly, Paul, the apostle Paul, the holy apostle, right? I mean, there's a guy that we all love and theologians make hero out of, right? Even he talks about, oh, my grumbling heart. I don't do what I want to do. I, I do what I don't want to do. He just goes back and forth because he's got a body of flesh. Now, as depressing as that is, um, I have room to be depressing just like I had room to be encouraging before I left. I'm back from vacation. We swam with the dolphin, and now we're back, so I get to be depressing for everybody. Um, there is encouragement in the midst of all that. God has promised to sanctify his people. One day, the worst grumblers among us will be sanctified, and we'll know what it's like to be perfectly content. I, I just think, just imagine if every moment you had an opportunity to complain, you just thought, Lord, I long for the day that I can face this very same thing and not complain. I long for the day I can have a chronic illness and not grumble against you. I long for the day when someone can sin against me and I can bear it just like Jesus bore my sins on the cross. Pray to that end. And let him take you that direction. Truth number three. This truth is seen specifically in Jethro's rebuke toward Moses. It's simply this. The grumbling, dissatisfied, disputing hearts of the people are too heavy for any man to bear. Too heavy for any man to bear. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jethro says this. What you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing. Listen to this. He's talking to Moses here, right? He's talking to better than Charleston Heston here. He's, he's saying this to him. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. This is wise wisdom. The words, you will certainly wear yourself out, can also be translated as, you will certainly wither, you'll certainly decay, and not just him, but he and the people. To put put it bluntly, he's telling Moses, Moses, you and the people are on a fast track to burnout. They're going to get sick of you, and you're going to get sick of them, and you're both going to die out here. That's the essential part of what he's telling him. Moses, if you keep being there all in all and acting as if you're their personal judge and savior who can bring peace in every situation, you will fail and you will wear yourself out by trying. And then same thing to the people. Moses is a weak stick to lean on. He'll break. Now, just be honest, when was the last time you read or thought about Moses and thought, man, what a fragile creature that man was? How breakable. How limited. Now, if it applied to Moses, do you think it applies to your pastors? I guarantee I'm not in the same role as Moses. 
I guarantee you none of your elders or former pastors or future pastors are ever going to be able to match up to Moses. And if Moses can't bear the hearts of grumbling people, neither can pastors. You know what we're being told here? Moses is disappointing as a support system, as a crutch. He's not a good crutch. Many pastors have experienced or are experiencing what Jethro describes. I get to talk to pastors on the phone quite often, and um, some of them are my age, some of them are older. But one thing I, I, I hear pretty often, just a few years into ministry, typically the pastor's emotional and spiritual health has started to decay. Burnt out has set in. He begins getting snippy with his wife and kids. Puts on lots of weight. Doesn't have hobbies. Hobbies, what are those? I don't have time for hobbies. Statistics show us that in that the, the, the most common burnout season is within the first five years of ministry in a church. Statistics also show us that 50% of all current pastors will not be pastors in the next five to ten years. Can you imagine that? Half of the pastors in the United States may no longer be pastors specifically because of wearing out. Now, who's to blame? Who's the fault? Well, it's not their church primarily, honestly. Sometimes it's the pastor for failing to continue to talk about how limited he actually is. Guys, this is one of my favorite sermons. One of my favorite messages. The more that I can discredit myself and the elders from being uh, infallible or perfect, the better it is for you and for me. The more you can realize how fallible and flawed that your pastors are, the more you'll actually see who isn't. I have people tell me all the time, I, I simply don't know how you balance it all. You have so much on your plate. I've, even recently, someone told me, I, I can only imagine the kind of burden you must be under. And I love those sentiments. I absolutely do. Because they're a fresh break from the other side of the room that thinks I only work one day a week. So I'm really appreciative of the sentiments, for sure. Because they're a good break from that. But they're not completely accurate. The issue is I haven't learned how to balance it all. The real reality of a successful ministry is learning that I can't balance it. It's not that I have so much on my plate or too much on my plate. It's that my heavy, my plate is too heavy in the first place to pick up. It's not that I'm under an incredible burden. It's that about my third or fourth year into ministry, I had to learn real quickly, I better get out of this stinking burden or I'll get crushed underneath it. So you know what I had to do? About third year into ministry, I had to fall on my knees and say, Jesus, your hands are the only ones big enough to carry this. I'm a weak shepherd, and if this church rests on me, it will break. Gosh, what a painful time that was to realize that. What a painful, just transparently, what a painful time to realize I was not it. I am not the Savior and Redeemer. I can barely carry my own crosses, let alone others. And it just came to a moment where it just hit me and where it was like, I am not enough. I am a shepherd, but they need the shepherd. 
I'm a gospel proclaimer, but they need the Savior. There are so many things that y'all need a shepherd to do that I cannot do. I cannot satisfy. I cannot make discontent hearts content. I cannot make sinful hearts repentant. I cannot make the hungry be filled. I cannot make the thirsty get water. But I can talk about the bread. And I can talk about the water. And I can talk about the Savior. And that's your only hope. Is if you allow me to be what I am. Not the Savior, but the sign that points you to Him. That's what Exodus 18 is all about here. I just read this and it just slapped me in the face. What a subtle detail, right? For the thing is too heavy for you. Wait, 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 wait. We're talking about Moses. The thing is too heavy for you. Now, while I don't think Jethro was talking about New Testament elders when he gave Moses his advice about sharing the load with men, um, he gave he gave him the the advice. He said, "You need able men from among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe." I don't think he was specifically thinking about New Testament church elders, but I think it applies nonetheless. Why do we at Grace Church believe in a plurality of elders? Because if the thing was too burdensome for Moses to bear, the thing is too burdensome for a single pastor to bear. Guys, I can't tell you how many times the elders of this church are the ones who have kept this church going. I get to be the mascot. I get to be up behind the pulpit. My name gets to be on the card, on the website. I get my picture up. But there are so many elders here that keep things going that you can't even imagine how much of the burden they bear. Fallible? Absolutely. Imperfect? Better believe it. Loving? Yes. Caring? Yes. We apply this truth from Exodus 18 here because we see elders in the New Testament, but also because we know that God's typical way of leading his people is to raise up qualified men in plurality, to lead together, to bear the burden together. Now, we could end there, but I think we're going to end with one greater further consideration. Thing was too heavy for Moses, right? We've seen that. He couldn't bear the burden. And then Jethro gives him this advice to create judges. Judges over tens, over hundreds, over thousands. And they're supposed to take all the small cases and bring the big cases to Moses. But as soon as we get past Joshua and into the book of Judges, we find out that men like these judges ultimately failed too. They were sinful people. They, some of their judges even became idolatrous. And men like Gideon, who had again seen the amazing deliverance of God, stands up and makes an idol for them to worship after he's dead. So if Moses failed, if the judges failed, then what in the world do we have any hope in? 
If every single shepherd that we talk about in Scripture, if every single shepherd in the pulpits across America today, if every single shepherd throughout all history has been flawed and failing and, and very, very, just a, a vapor in the wind, temporary, what hope do we have? Well, here's the glaring need that Exodus 18 leaves you with. We need a shepherd who can bear the burden and not wear out. We need someone greater than Moses. We need someone greater than judges. We need someone greater than even our best pastors. We need the chief shepherd who can bear the weight, who can say things like, you who are heavy laden, come to me and find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Why can he say that? Why can he tell you to bring his bur- bring your burdens to him? Because he can carry them. Because he can bring satisfaction when nobody else can. He can bring comfort when no one else can. The same chief shepherd bore the weight of the sins of the world. He went to the cross. He died. He was buried. And then he rose again. And what an incredible message to say, listen, this is the first shepherd and leader of God's people in all history, the final leader of history, who is not even worn out by death. You want to know a burden is not big enough for this guy to be crushed underneath. He can carry it all, even death. And he slumps it off three days later, showing he's the eternal son of God. Talk about satisfaction. I can't do that on my own. I can't die for sins. I can't be buried. And I can't raise again three days later on my own. But he can. Go to him. That's what Exodus 18 pounds into our hearts. If we find ourselves disputing, grumbling, complaining, nitpicking, we must look to our chief shepherd who alone can settle the disputes. And bring peace between God and man. He alone can silence those dissatisfied groanings inside of you. If we find ourselves grieved by our own propensity to grumble about pastors and churches, and we find the temptation that we just, we want to stay home in our own little bubble so we can just stay away from it all and not be dissatisfied, let the chief shepherd point you to the reality. He has brought you into a people, into a nation, into a royal priesthood, so that you wouldn't find many saviors among them, but that you would find brothers and sisters who all rely on the same savior, Jesus Christ. You don't need church in the sense of you need people around you like that in that sense to to carry the burdens for you. Sure, we share burdens. Paul even says, bear one another's burdens. But ultimately, we're people who come together because we know the solution to our burdens. And we know him personally. It's as we carry burdens together that we realize we're not carrying burdens at all. He's carrying them for for us. Now, this is great. As hard as it is for a young 
prideful, upstart pastor like me to admit I am not God's answer for the church. This is a beautiful thing. Moses lays his staff down at the feet of Jesus. The judges hand over their positions, the judge to Jesus. And pastors give up their position because when the chief shepherd appears, you don't need shepherds anymore. That's the beauty of it all. No glory to us, but glory to him. Here's what Jesus, here's what the author of Hebrews says. I think, thinking about Exodus and Exodus 18 possibly, he says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory greater than Moses. Huh. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful. He gives us that caveat. And all God's house has a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. You hear what that says? Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is greater than your pastors. Jesus is greater than the people around you. So why, why expect pastors, Moses, judges, or people around you to be able to do what only Jesus can do? There are many of you that are burdened and you are just frustrated. You cannot seem to find anyone reliable to carry the burden that you have. You have complaints that are so big and so great, it just keeps you awake at night. Your heart hurts, it grumbles. My friends, let's bring it to Jesus today. If you're an elder in the church and you, and you want to pray with our people today, if you'll just go to the back, take your wife with you. And if you're someone in here today that's burdened and you feel that heavy burden, we can't take it from you. If you feel thirsty, we can't give you, make you, force you to drink water because we're not the water. We can't fill you if you're hungry, but we can pray to the one who is the bread of life, who is the water of life, and who is the satisfier of men's souls. Let's pray for you today. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you for all that you are and who you are. And God, I pray right now that those who are weary and heavy laden, that they will come to you to find rest. God, I, Moses, all pastors, all judges, all kings, all presidents, all politicians will one day give up our seats of authority to your son and every knee will bow to him and he will be the king of all. So Lord, let us now practice what that means as we find satisfaction in him alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.